2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host. And today we are talking to one of the editors of a volume called Cuba and Puerto Rico, Transdisciplinary Approaches to History, Literature, and Culture. Today we have Dr. Jorge Duani online with us to talk about um, his work and the book and how it came about. Jorge, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So, Dr. Duani is the Director of the Cuban Research Institute and Professor of Anthropology in the Department of Global and Sociocultural Studies at Florida International University. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about um, either your personal investment in this project and or your own work academically on this topic and how this book came about?
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. And of course, those two are very closely intertwined, as you know, so my personal and my academic and professional activities are focused on these two countries, Cuba and Puerto Rico, uh, for both autobiographical and non-biographical reasons. So I was born in Cuba uh, and raised in Panama and Puerto Rico. Uh, and then uh, after uh, completing my studies, I returned to Puerto Rico, um, uh, spent there uh, a few more decades until I came to Florida in 2012, uh, where I am now based, uh, as you mentioned, as a professor of anthropology, but also most of my time I spend directing the Cuban Research Institute. So um, this is very close to my heart, uh, and I have written a uh, uh, an essay that that, uh, talks about my own experiences, but also connecting it to my uh, academic pursuits. And maybe that's that's the uh, other part of the question that I want to address. Uh, I did my PhD uh, dissertation on the Cuban community in San Juan, to which my own family belongs. We arrived in 1966, and we're part of this uh, growing community at the time. And now it's not growing anymore. It's uh, actually dwindling since uh, the 1970s. But, uh, I was part of a social club uh, called Casa Cuba that I uh, basically had all my friends uh, in and uh, my siblings and I spent most weekends there, etc. And so um, that led me then to uh, try to understand myself and uh, my own community in a more academic way. So that's why I decided to focus on um, studying the Cuban-American, the Cuban-Puerto Rican community, actually. And, and that's a slip of the tongue because now I'm more... Uh, concern or more directly related to the Cuban-American community here in Miami. But I do feel uh, something of Cuba Rican, which is the title of, of that piece, the very last uh, uh, essay in the, in the edited volume um, that somehow, I think, brings together this, uh, uh, the term, the term Cuba Rican, the ambivalent uh, hybrid cultural identity that I have uh, felt for a long, long time and that uh, I finally, after many years, feel comfortable with. So uh, maybe that's an introduction to other topics that you may want to uh, talk about more uh, in more detail.
0: Yeah. And and you're particularly known for your work on migration, um, movement between regions. So specifically in the Caribbean with the United States, um, North America, I guess... How has your scholarship on that developed? How, how do you see it being so important to look at how people are moving between places, both physically but also you know, metaphorically, um, cognitively, socially, moving between f- multiple countries in, across Latin America and the Caribbean and also the United States and maybe back again?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, my my work, now looking back at it since the uh, mid 1980s when I got my PhD to the present, has progressed in uh, in several stages. So I mentioned the first stage was my dissertation on Cubans in Puerto Rico, which is sort of autobiographical and autoethnographic. And then my next uh, project was uh, also based in Puerto Rico, but looking at Dominican migration to Puerto Rico, which at the time, uh, had not been studied well, and uh, continues to uh, affect Puerto Rican society. Uh, and I'm, I'm also interested in that uh, group of people. And finally, I turned to Puerto Rican migration, both uh, to the U.S. and return migration, or what I then called uh, some time ago, circular migration. So uh, one of my books in 2002 was entitled The Puerto Rican Nation and Move, which is actually is more, I think, interesting in Spanish. It's La Nación en Viven, Vén. Uh, this term, this sort of folk term referring to the coming and going of Puerto Ricans in in both directions. And that flow, actually, between the U.S. and uh, Puerto Rico has continued unabated in the last uh, decades. So somehow I got to study the three main uh, uh, countries of the Hispanic Caribbean, uh, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico. Although, as I mentioned uh, in my first uh, answer, uh, now I'm more uh, concentrated on the Cuban exodus, Uh, and particularly to Miami and to the United States. But I continue to be uh, interested in in the Spanish-Caribbean, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And as you hinted in your question as well, also in what uh, the the Hispanic-Caribbean case tells about transnational movements, about diasporas, about identities. And uh, actually, I also wrote another book uh, sort of uh, summarizing what I knew then in 2011. It's called Blurred Borders, uh, Transnational Migration Between the Hispanic-Caribbean and the United States.
0: Yeah. And I guess since you've been in the field for a while, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about you're specifically in anthropology, so you'll probably be looking at it from that lens, but how the field has changed, how Caribbean studies has changed, identitarian kind of understandings, particularly in that transnational or trans, you know, migratory. Lens, how things have changed over the last several decades and where we're going, maybe too.
2: Yeah, one of my main fields uh, of uh, reading, I remember that I had to put together a reading list like most PhD students have to do to survive, uh, was Caribbean studies. Uh, And this was uh, early 1980s. At that time, the field of Caribbean migration studies was not well developed. Uh, It was mostly, uh, you know, studies of particular countries in the Caribbean, Haiti, Jamaica, uh, some studies of Puerto Rico, but migration was not then uh, a major concern. I think it is now. So that's one of the main changes. And and perhaps that has to do with the the sheer number of of Caribbean citizens who are not living in the territories of origin. And if you actually compare the numbers, the Caribbean is probably the largest uh, migrant sending region in the world. And I don't have the exact numbers right now with me, but it's pretty telling that, for example, in the Puerto Rican case, there are many more Puerto Ricans living outside Puerto Rico than, uh, than in the mainland, in the U.S. mainland. It's about two-thirds of all uh, people of Puerto Rican origin are now based in, in the continental in the 50 United States. For the Dominican Republic and Cuba, it's about 17%. Uh, and for some of the other non-Hispanic countries, it's quite, quite substantial. For example, Jamaica or Barbados, which was one of the first uh, migrant-sending countries in the region to be... Uh, really depopulated uh, since the 19th century because of migration. So um, it's hard for me to characterize the field as a whole, but I would say for me, uh, uh, as I began to uh, look for uh, theoretical uh, approaches to the study of Caribbean migration, in the 1990s, uh, actually, I found myself uh, in dialogue with the so-called transnational Uh, perspective, which was inaugurated by a group of anthropologists, uh, Nina Glick-Schiller among them, uh, and that really um, uh, promoted this new field of studies. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, it's still uh, quite, quite uh, uh, important. Uh, So I see my my own work, uh, particularly uh, dealing with uh, the post-1990s flow of Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and, and Cubans as contributing to the field of transnationalism and the closely related field of diaspora studies. And in fact, in my own work, I don't feel it's uh, very useful to distinguish those two concepts, diaspora and transnationalism, in any sort of clear cut way because I often feel myself talking about diasporas. And I do think that the the three countries have uh, developed a a very large uh, number of people who are in the diaspora and who identify in a diasporic way. In different ways, of course, exile, for example, is much more important for the Cubans than for the other two groups, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. Um, And so I've been constantly uh, addressing this uh, uh, issue of borders and how borders and boundaries uh, are crossed by migrants uh, in multiple ways, uh, not only physically. And I think that was also part of your earlier question, not only the act of, of moving and relocating from one place to another, but also crossing um, um, cultural boundaries, for example, racial ones, uh, linguistic ones. uh, Even um, the idea, for example, that I'm actually studying right now with some colleagues that uh, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and Dominicans, and I'll stay with those three groups because they're the ones that I know best, are somehow merging into this pan-Latino, Hispanic uh, identity. And in fact, what we're finding In a comparative study that we're conducting right now with those three groups in Miami, in Orlando, New York, is that they don't. They don't really cross frequently those boundaries. They continue to cling to their national identities, and then they are uh, more tied to the home countries than to other Latino groups in in, in all these places.
0: Yeah, I feel like that is... There's a, there's a disjuncture between how these groups are thinking of themselves and how they are being perceived by, you know, white, Anglo, U.S.-based people who don't have any Latin or Hispanic affiliation or too much understanding either. And I think that that's a, an interesting phenomenon that's a issue with how we are, you know, like white, non-Hispanic, non-Latin people are taught to view these groups. Uh, it's just not... Um, accurate. And those groups are so much more multifaceted and complex than we are taught. And it's like, oh, they're Hispanic.
2: And even to add to the complexity, of course, the the growing use of Latinx or even Latine in some quarters is even more daunting because, again, uh, most of the evidence that I have seen suggests that those terms are not used by the people that they're supposed to describe.
0: Right. And there's a subset of people who are and then A lot of people aren't especially if they're older generations or people who came directly from spanish-speaking countries where those terms don't make sense in spanish for example um and it's complex i i i'm always i'm a historian so i'm always very interested in where we came from and i really liked that the book started with the history of all of this right like how did we end up here how did we end up with the conceptualizations and identities that we are currently trying to contest and understand. Um, so if you could briefly talk about the beginning of the book and how this study is framed and how you are situating these conversations, some of which in the essays that are in this book are historical. Um where you're kind of starting with that – I study Cuba in the the decades before you really start. You really start with the U.S. invasion in 1898 is where you really pick up with the history in this book specifically. I'm a few decades ahead of that. But I'm interested in kind of how the very intertwined histories of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the United States – are contributing to these phenomena that are happening in this essay and what your understanding of those intertwined and maybe diverging histories have to do with each other?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Let me see if I can um, address it in, in, in several parts. First, I, I perhaps I, I want to mention that the original title of the edited volume was uh, Two Wings of One Bird. Which makes reference to a very famous uh, poem by Lola Rodríguez de the Puerto Rican poet, who spent much of her life in exile uh, in Cuba. Uh, and in fact, uh, many Cubans think that it wasn't uh, Lola but José Martí who famously said that. And uh, but anyway, there's a poem called "A Cuba." Uh, which, which has those famous lines, Cuba and Puerto Rico are like two wings of the same bird, and together they receive flowers and bullets in the same heart. Uh, and somehow that, that um, expression, I think, uh, helps to answer your question and also to uh, connect the various chapters. Uh, there are, I think, 16 chapters, if I'm not mistaken, 16, yes, including my own. Uh, and um, even though they do Deal with different topics, history, literature, culture, music, in particular, uh, uh, migration, etc. cetera. They, they somehow, the, the running theme is, is this question of, of how exactly uh, do uh, the histories, cultures, uh, and, uh, and, and traditions of each of these countries intertwine. When do they separate and and uh, why it makes sense to approach them in a systematic comparative fashion? So I would just uh, begin maybe by saying that I think during the 16th, from the 16th to the 19th century. So uh, once the two countries were uh, colonized by Spain in the late uh, 15th century, but really fully uh, beginning in the 1500s and then all the way up to 1898, uh, uh, they... Uh, basically shared the same um, colonial background, Uh, even though, of course, Cuba was much larger and much more important in terms of the trade between the Americas and Spain. Uh, Havana was one of the largest uh, colonial cities uh, in the Americas, Uh, and Puerto Rico was always sort of marginal to uh, the Spanish uh, empire except that after the independence of, of the various uh, mainland colonies of, of uh, Spanish America, the last remaining colonies were or Cuba and Puerto Rico. And that uh, then gave, uh, a more, uh, gave more importance to, to Cuba, which was again sort of the jewel of the crown, but also to Puerto Rico, which began to develop its own sugar and coffee uh, agricultural economy. And, and Puerto Rico actually became the second largest sugar producer uh, after Cuba uh, during the 19th century. Same language, similar dialect. The Catholic religion were, uh, was, was imposed on both islands and remained the only official religion uh, for centuries. Uh, the food, the music, uh, uh, etc. Anyone who who visits both countries can appreciate many of the parallels between the two countries, especially those having to do with uh, cultural and uh, linguistic as well as geographic uh uh, connections. Of course, you know, maybe that's sort of the, the beginning of the story has to do with the fact that both uh, countries are islands or archipelagos. They're located in the larger Antilles uh, and, and uh, the tropical climate uh, is similar um, and the landscape, et cetera. So th- those are the similarities. Now, the difference is, of course, uh, can be traced back to the Spanish colonial period. As I already mentioned, I think Cuba uh, and particularly Havana uh, became um, uh critical to uh, the Spanish Empire during the 19th century. It was really the wealthiest uh, and most important, the most faithful uh, colony uh, during the 19th century. That was the, the term that the Spanish used. Of course, they weren't so faithful after 1868 when uh, a 30-year war for independence uh, began uh, in Cuba. Um, but the main differences, I think, really arise in the 20th century, and that we, we trace some of those And uh, each one of the chapters Uh, picks up on on particular aspects of these uh, political and economic uh, trends that characterize the 20th century, uh, which, uh, of course, begin with the end of the Spanish-American War or the Spanish-Cuban-American War, if you want to be politically correct, when Cuba became independent in 1902, whereas Puerto Rico remained uh, officially an unincorporated territory of the United States uh, until it became then uh, a Commonwealth in 1952. And clearly the, the two countries diverged politically and economically in a major way after 1959, with the triumph of the Cuban Revolution. And uh, of course I'm summarizing with well, a very complex historical process, but in the last uh, six decades or so, Cuba became a model of a certain type of socialist uh, one-party centrally planned economy, whereas Puerto Rico uh, became more integrated into the U.S. orbit and for a while at least became a model of uh, economic and political development uh, under capitalism and uh, US uh, uh, supervision, so to speak. Uh, What was then called uh, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, um, I forget the exact term, but anyway, it was was, uh, a country that's not independent, that is not sovereign, but it's not part of the United States either, as one of the 50 states. And one uh, or two, actually, of the two of the chapters—one by Francisco Carano, another one by Lilian Guerra—actually dispute the the idea, the sort of generally received idea that the two countries are now completely separate, completely different, and that they have nothing in common. And I think that's a very insightful um, observation. That besides the, the differences, the, the you know the very clear differences in the government uh, organization of the two countries. The economic system that there are some uh, continuing uh, issues. For example, the uh, uh, the fact that neither of the two countries has been able to develop its own uh, uh, model uh, of, of economy that they have relied first in the case of Puerto Rico on the US for all this time, and then in the case of Cuba first uh, on the Soviet Union and more recently on, on Venezuela, and that the, the, the living standards of both countries are Quite uh, fragile, precisely because they haven't been able to address those basic sort of subsistence issues. So that, in a nutshell, I know it's a a lot uh, to say in, in just a few minutes, but I think uh, it's it's our logic and our um, justification for putting uh, this book together and uh, trying to uh, dialogue between uh, the two countries in a single volume.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: And it makes a lot of sense that we are going to approach these countries and at various points, colonies, territories, unincorporated, annexed territory, you know, whatever they were at various points in history uh, together, but also kind of diverging in interesting ways. Um, And I wanted to talk, I know that this wasn't... um, an essay that you wrote, it's its right before your essay near the end of the volume. But briefly talking about the experiences of just to, again, talk about the issue of the monolith, the assumption that all migrants from the Latin American and Caribbean region are monoliths. I, I kind of got that narrative, I think, in school and just socially, generally, until I really started seeking this out and trying to learn specific information about specific groups. But uh, the experiences of the orientales and the habaneros or habaneras that came to Cuba and their experiences, just briefly, um, in the United States and how those different migrant groups kind of represent the complicated nature of migration?
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the most original uh, contributions of the book. It's written by uh, Blanca Ortiz, and uh, I always uh, somehow forget the name of Mario Cancel, uh, the co-author. It's about the migration, the recent migration of Cubans to Puerto Rico. So in many ways, it sort of uh, extends my own work uh, that I mentioned earlier, but then it focuses on the regional differences, as you uh, mentioned. And uh, those of, of, of our um, listeners who are familiar with Cuban history and Cuban culture will know that there are historically, and even today, great differences between the so-called orientales, people from Oriente, the eastern provinces of, uh, of Cuba, and habaneros, particularly or the western provinces of the island. In my own uh, family, my my father's family is from Santiago, so he's an Oriental, and my mother's family is from Havana. So I have personally experienced those uh, uh, issues as well. But what uh, Ortiz and, and Cancel uh, uh, focus on is precisely the sense of displacement uh, that many uh, Orientales felt, even within their own country, so that when they migrated to from Santiago, say, or from Holguin to Havana, they often were... Uh, Shunned and discriminated against uh, because of their accent. Supposedly, you know, in, in Havana, uh, these uh, Orientales don't know how to speak Spanish correctly, and Habaneros are proud of speaking a better Spanish. Although, of course, the Habaneros have uh, faced the same kind of prejudice when they leave the island. Um, not in Miami, where Havana, the Havana accent uh, prevails. But, um, and then, of course, the racial uh, undertones of, of those. Uh, uh, complicated relationships between um, uh, different parts of, of the country. Uh, you may know, and others may, may also know that in Cuba, the term that's used to describe uh, migrant internal migrants from Oriente is palestinos or palestinians, you know, as if they were refugees from another country. And of course, maybe the implication that they are coming from, from the East, but it's a very negative pejorative uh, uh, image of these orientales. What um, Ortiz, uh, Ortiz Torres and, and Rodriguez Cancel uh, found is that orientales uh, who uh, move to Puerto Rico actually are uh, very comfortable. They tend to mingle into Puerto Rican culture. Their, their accent doesn't stand out as much as it does perhaps in Havana because uh, there are historical and linguistic links between Puerto Rico and the eastern provinces of Cuba uh, that they feel at home in many cases. And that compared to the U.S., especially... They, they don't find that, of course there are no language differences like they are perhaps in other parts of the. US. But in Puerto Rico, this particular group of people, the latest wave uh, seems to integrate quite well um, and uh, and it will probably be absorbed by Puerto Rican society uh, pretty soon without any major uh, conflicts. I, I, I'd like to add that you know, in the 1980s when I was doing my dissertation, I found that, Cubans of different uh, origins, not just from Oriente, but uh, in general from the island, were intermarrying Puerto Ricans uh, by uh, a large margin. Uh, this is 1983. So by now, I, I don't have uh, the quantitative data to uh, to document it, but I think it's pretty clear that Puerto Ricans and Cubans have married with each other, that their children were uh, products of mixed Puerto Rican and, and Cuban marriages, identify with the Puerto Rican uh, Uh, culture and and therefore become uh, fully integrated into Puerto Rican society.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that explanation. And it's interesting too that you have some personal connection to it. Um, And I think that also just looking at like specific um, either expat or exile communities in places like Miami is really interesting. And especially because you're in Florida, Um, and so you're there, you're probably able, if you're an, you know, in anthropology, you're probably doing some, um, direct work with people. I guess now my question is, what does that look like right now in Florida doing this type of work? Uh, what are you working on right now and where do you see your scholarship going?
2: Yeah. I mentioned briefly that I am part of a comparative study, collaborative, uh, research project With uh, colleagues in uh, at the University of Central Florida and Orlando and uh, City University of New York, uh, which focus on Puerto Ricans in the case of Orlando and Dominicans in the case of New York, so uh, we don't have yet uh, results to share. But as I mentioned earlier, what we are finding is that uh, most of the interviews that we have conducted suggest that people cling very much to their national identities rather than embrace a pan-ethnic identity. We'll have to figure out exactly why that is happening uh, and, uh, and then you know unpack it by, by generation, by age, perhaps race, all kinds of different variables. So that's, that's my current um, research project. Now, in terms of the, the Cuban community here in Miami, uh, unfortunately I have to say that there hasn't been any study that I know of Uh, that focuses on these regional differences here. Uh, We do know that most of the uh, uh, Cuban American community are people who come from Havana, uh, and that is uh, a well-established fact. Uh, But we don't know, for example, how this uh, group of habaneros relates to other groups uh, from the rest of the island, except uh, on an anecdotal basis in, in which, for example, I can tell you from my own experience that when people, when, when Cubans in Miami listen to your uh, accent in Spanish, you know, they, and they don't uh, recognize exactly words from, they might tell you, oh, you sound like an oriental. You know, you sound like somebody from Oriente, which, again, uh, because of that uh, long history, which goes back to the early colonial period, you know, the rivalry between Santiago and Havana basically means that you're not Cuban or you don't sound Cuban enough, you know. And it's, these are very minor um, differences between the Spanish spoken in different regions of of uh, Cuba and by extension the Caribbean. Just to give you a couple of examples, uh, the word plátano or guineo uh, to refer to uh, bananas, right, uh, is different in Havana and Santiago. And uh, in, in in Santiago, uh, the, the preferred term is, is guineo, but to uh, a, a, an habanero ear that doesn't ring a bell. I mean, they know what it is, but it's not the word that they use. Uh, and there are other examples of that. There are very minor differences in vocabulary and intonation, et cetera. But I think in, at a more general general level, and it speaks to something that you also mentioned earlier, it helps to understand the diversity of the Cuban-American population that uh, even though they all call themselves Cuban, they have different uh, backgrounds, they uh, different generations as well. Uh, different racial uh, statuses, and of course class, uh, which is uh, clearly uh, uh, a a source of fragmentation of the Cuban American community.
0: Definitely. And we can see why and um, how certain parts of the Cuban population are being mobilized in Florida specifically um, for certain political purposes because of some of those class and other differences. Um, And I want to talk Briefly, too, about uh, the final essay in the volume, which is your own essay about your personal experience. Um, Obviously, you talked about this more at the beginning, but I wanted to talk a bit about how you've kind of, as a scholar, handled, you know, this very kind of academic approach, especially with anthropology, where you're trying to you know, isolate factors and, and do all of these kind of more academic um, moves, but then also your very personal and probably very emotional and, you know, close to you investment in this type of work and how, I mean, I, d- I don't personally see that as um, in conflict or it shouldn't be in conflict, but I think probably it has been at points and how you've kind of contended with that.
2: Yeah. And again, I'm sorry that my uh, co-editor, Carmen Aide Rivera, can't join us today, but be- because uh, I know that she has a lot to say precisely about this issue from her own personal point of view as the, the, the child of uh, uh, a return migrant family from Puerto Rico that left uh, uh, decades ago uh, and who uh, retained their Puerto Rican identity in Boston. And then when she went back to Complete her uh, PhD in uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, and now she teaches English rather than Spanish. That makes for a very interesting combination. I think the the the, the actual pairing up of our own histories and and academic uh, identities—the fact that she's uh, in, in in literature and and uh, the humanities, uh, whereas I'm I'm coming from the social sciences—but I think what in general what What I can say about that is that we we're all part of the study of the part of the object of study that we are focusing on in in this book and that extends to some of the in fact many of the uh, contributors who are either cuban or puerto rican or uh another ethnicity there's a panamanian for example uh in the collection as well so each one of us approaches uh, the topic from a very personal uh, point of view uh, however, I'm the only one in this collection that uh, does that explicitly, you know, and I have to say this was this is not the typical uh, essay that I write. Uh, I tend to write in the third person, you know, and uh, kind of hide myself from from view. Uh, but but I, uh, I did uh, try to uh, reflect upon my own uh, positionality and how that position as a Cuban Rican places me both inside and outside the topics that I'm interested in. And we've mentioned some of them, the question of identity, uh, how uh, identities uh, shift from one place to another, uh, the question of language, uh, English Mm -hmm. and Spanish, uh, and uh, the combination of Puerto Rican and Cuban culture that I also in my own life experience. So um, at the same time, I think we, we all agree, I think, in this book that we have to attempt to uh, use the analytical tools of our disciplines, whether it's history, anthropology, or literature, or music, musicology, to understand better our own personal experiences in the context of a wider uh, field of study. So this is not a book about ourselves, but it's really a book about, you know, the, uh, the histories, cultures, and societies of the two countries as they intersect with each other. And I finally, maybe, maybe I want to add that... Uh, both Carmen Idea and myself, and I'm sure many of the others uh, uh, who contributed to the, to the book are clearly committed to ad- advancing the knowledge and understanding of the Cuban and Puerto Rican diasporas to which we belong. Uh, and uh, this is a continuing uh, struggle, I would say, because for instance, there's still a divide between Puerto Ricans living on the island and Puerto Ricans living in the United States. It has to do with language, it has to do with, uh, again, migration experiences, generation, etc., And so uh, I think we, we both uh, see our work, uh, Carmen Adea and myself as, as expanding the boundaries of uh, traditional discourses of the nation. And in my case, uh, for the Cuban nation also, I have argued elsewhere that I don't think it's uh, useful any longer to define the meaning of being Cuban by restricting it to the territory uh, of the homeland but rather a very complex and, uh, as they used to say in the old days, dialectic relationship with uh, the territory and the place of origin and and the place where people are living now.
0: Yeah, and there's so many Cubans who are outside of Cuba and then retain that identity, and that's really important. Um, I haven't really looked at those exile communities, but a lot of scholars do, and I think it's something I will have to do at some point. Um, and I want to say yes. The the idea of positionality. I'm very interested in positionality as um, a white scholar who studies whiteness and blackness and how they're um, kind of mutually constituting each other and how they are um, they don't exist without each other. In other words, and I think that that is really important to do as a scholar. And I'm really glad that that is we're moving towards this very rich, you know a lot of times first-person narrative to talk about, because as a historian, we do not use first-person either, um, to really put ourselves back into that work and, and dialogue in that way. I think it's um, it creates this richer, kind of more human experience where you know we are not separate from our work. We are ourselves when we are doing research. We are not stepping outside of our bodies. Um, and so I think that that essay was a great way to end Uh, The volume, and I just want to say thanks for doing that work. Um, and I also want to say, too, that um, you know, Jorge and Carmen Aide um, Rivera, who is the other editor of this volume, they did an interview in Spanish for New Books Network Espanol. So, if you understand Spanish and you're interested in receiving more information and getting you know her perspective as well. Check out that interview. Um, they they go into depth about who they are and what they're um, doing as scholars, and also with this volume specifically. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Jorge, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about that work you're doing and reading more books in the future.
2: Thank you, Anna, and thank you for having me uh, in this uh, conversation.
0: Certainly.